Well, open your Bibles with me now to the book of Romans chapter 6 as we continue to make our way through this amazing epistle that is so full and so rich. We are picking up where we left off last week. Last week we read verses 1 and 2 from chapter 6, and we are picking up now in verse 3. Covering a lot of ground this morning, we're going all the way through verse 7. So, let's read together from Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 3. Do you not know that all of, the, all of us who were, have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Thank you, Lord, for this precious gift, this treasure that you have given to us. Through it, we hear the voice of our God. Through your spirits working by your word, we are transformed, brought from death to life, transformed into the likeness of our Savior. And we pray, Lord, that your word would accomplish its good work this morning among us. Pray for myself as I proclaim your word. Let the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you remember from last week, chapter six begins with this question, really a rhetorical device that Paul is using, and he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In light of all Paul's been teaching about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not through any merits of our own, in light of what Paul has taught about the power of God, the power of grace to break us free from our solidarity in sin, in death with Adam, to break us free from the reign of sin and death, not based on our cleaning ourselves up, but just by faith alone, Paul says, what should we say? Should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? And then right away, he answers that question in no uncertain terms, by no means. If you read the King James, it says, God forbid. It's the strongest repudiation in the New Testament Greek. He's not just answering in the negative. He abhors the thought. He recoils from the thought that we would continue in sin so that we could have more grace. And Paul's great concern, as we saw last week, as we go forward in chapter 6, is sanctification. That those who have been justified, those who have been credited Christ's own righteous status, have been justified unto holiness. Now, we're not justified by our holiness. We're not justified through our holiness, but we are justified unto holiness, that we might grow in conformity to the image of Christ. 
So we've not just been credited with Christ's righteous status as a free gift of his grace, but this gift of grace, this righteousness of Christ credited to us, accounted to us, it also produces something in us. It produces in the life of the believer a comprehensive righteousness. It produces holiness. It produces obedience. It produces faithfulness in the life of the one who receives it. And so Paul, as he has been preaching this gospel of grace, that we're not saved by the things that we do, we're not saved by our law-keeping, we're saved alone by the grace of God, he's been battling against a kind of legalism that would say we're justified by the things we do. We're justified by adhering to the law. There's a list of things not to do, and there's a list of things we need to do, and as long as we're managing those lists well enough, we might be in right standing with God. In other words, it's the idea that it's our obedience that saves or at the very least improves our standing with God. But as Paul has been battling against that legalism, that false gospel, it has led some in a bad direction, or at least it has led some to accuse Paul of teaching something that's in a bad direction. As we saw last week, antinomianism, which just means against the law. It doesn't matter if we sin. Since we're saved by grace alone, it doesn't actually matter what we do or don't do because God's grace is gonna just keep abounding to us over and over. We're not just justified apart from our works, but we continue to live our Christian life apart from any good works that we do as well. Well, that's a ditch on the other side of the road. And so Paul says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says in verse two, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Grace doesn't give us, as we saw last week, license to sin. In fact, continuing in sin is an utter contradiction of grace. It's a contradiction of the purposes of grace. Grace has caused us to die to sin. We have been set free from the reign of sin and death. And so if we're to continue living in sin, if we're, if we're to be rescued out of that solidarity with Adam, we've used a few different images from this, that concrete slab that we are just uh, cemented into, uh, the image of the pit with the prison cell down at the bottom. If we've been set free from that, if we just continue to live in it, it is a total contradiction of who we are. It stands in direct opposition to God's grace. And so when Paul says, we have died to sin, he's talking about what happens when a person has been united to Christ, broken free from their unity in Adam and united instead to Christ. The reason the believer is dead to sin is because they have been united to Christ. Our union with Christ is one of the most essential truths we could ever come to understand. It's one of the most essential things about us as believers. It is the divine, defining thing about us as believers. Because in our union with Christ, the believer dies to the power of sin. The believer dies to the penalty of sin. And up till this point in Romans, Paul has been talking about the penalty of sin being broken. We stood under the just condemnation of God for our sins and also the sin we were just born into in Adam. He's been talking about how that penalty is broken. The believer is justified, declared righteous by God. Condemnation is erased. And so now as we come to chapter six, Paul's concerned that we see it's not just the penalty for sin that's been broken, the power of sin has been broken 
Two, it's broken by our union with Christ. John Murray says union with Christ is the central truth of the doctrine of salvation. It's the mother of all doctrines. It, it's, it's not just this idea of being united to Christ, of being in Christ. It's not just wishful thinking. It's not just poetic language. It's the defining spiritual reality in the life of the Christian. We are in Christ. And because we are in Christ, we are dead to sin. Sin is not our master anymore. So it would actually be impossible for a true believer to continue on in sin the way they were before their conversion. It's incompatible. It can't be. You've been broken free from that. You've been placed in Christ. And so now we come to verse three. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Why does Paul turn to baptism here, this baptism talk? What exactly is he saying? Now some take this to mean, Paul's saying baptism is the thing that actually saves you. That is not what Paul's saying, by the way. He's not saying that at all, but we do need to follow his logic. Paul is not saying that water baptism saves us. He is not saying that water baptism is, is what unites us to Christ. What he is saying is it is a symbol of our union with Christ. As he's going to go on and, and, and talk about baptism here, it's a symbol of our union with Christ. John MacArthur says Paul is using the physical analogy of water baptism to teach the spiritual reality of the believer's union with Christ. Our baptism symbolizes our union with Christ and his death and resurrection, that, that by the Holy Spirit, every person who believes in Christ is then joined to Christ. We have this true spiritual union with him. I am in him, he is in me. And so Paul, in trying to explain this to these believers says, don't you even know the meaning of your baptism? In the New Testament era, there wasn't such a thing as being genuinely converted and then not getting baptized. You didn't just become a true Christian and then go, I think I'll pass on the baptism though. It seems kind of weird. No, you got baptized pretty much immediately upon your conversion. And Paul says, don't you know what that means? Don't you know what that baptism means? The, the New Testament mode of baptism, I know different churches do it all different kinds of ways. The New Testament mode is immersion submerged totally in water. It, it pictures exactly what it is that baptism is symbol, uh, uh, symbolizing, that, that water baptism signifies in a tr dramatic way our death with Christ and our resurrection with Christ. Baptism represents our union with Christ in all phases of his mediatorial work. We died, we were buried, we have been raised with Christ. That's what baptism is, is symbolizing for us. It's demonstrating it for us. And so in immersion, in the going into the water, it points to our death with Christ. As we go into the water, being submerged under the water symbolizes our burial with Christ. Immersion, coming out of the water, symbolizes our resurrection with Christ. That's why Paul says in Colossians 2, verse 12, you've been buried with him in baptism. 
in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So that's why Paul is pointing to this. So far in Romans, Paul has been addressing the legal transaction that happens between God and us. That Jesus took our sins and what Martin Luther called the great exchange. Jesus took our sins upon himself and his perfect righteousness was imputed, credited to us. So now Paul is just taking that even further to the next logical step. He's talking about the real spiritual union then that we have with Jesus. We have died with him. It's because when he went to the cross, he didn't go for himself. He went for his people. And he did there the work we couldn't possibly do for ourselves. But what Paul is trying to show us here is it's, it's more than that even. It's not just that Jesus died for his people. It's that we, by virtue of this spiritual union, died with him. And furthermore, we didn't just die with him, we what? We were raised with him. Paul says, all of this happened. You died with him and you were raised with him so that we might walk in newness of life. In a very real sense, we who are raised with Christ share in the power of the resurrection, not just in heaven after we die, when everything is made finally and fully perfect. Right now, we share in the power of his resurrection because everyone who is justified, everyone who has been given saving faith by God is someone who has been raised already from the dead, raised from spiritual death. Christian, you've been raised from death. I remember talking to my son. I can say this because he's not sitting here. He was getting ready to go on a missions trip. I think it was the summer before his senior year in high school to Guatemala. And they were going to be sharing their testimonies. And he talked to me. He said, Dad, my testimony is just not very good. It's just not very exciting. These other kids are going to have these amazing testimonies about how they did drugs and were drinking and lived these wild lifestyles and how Jesus saved them and set them free from all that. I've just always believed and wanted to obey, and then one day it just became real in my own, in my heart. And uh, I looked at him and I said, are you a dead person that God had to make alive? <laughs> yeah, I am. I said, okay, it doesn't get better than that. There's nothing more exciting than that. There's nothing more miraculous than that. Christian, you're a dead person that God made alive. You've been resurrected. You have this resurrection power right now. You've already been raised from the dead, and we've seen repeatedly, haven't we in the early chapters of Romans, the horrifying condition of humanity? The horrifying, in those early chapters, those first three chapters, as Paul walks us to the ledge of this pit of filth and, and disgusting rebellion against God and has us look down at what humanity really looks like, the horrifying state in Adam, that people aren't sinners because they sin, they sin because they're sinners, that this is who they are on the inside. It's not that, that, that everyone has such good hearts and would just do well if they had the right opportunities. No, our hearts are wicked. They're bound in sin. When the Bible describes the condition of humanity apart from Christ, it's not basically good if given the right opportunities. There's two major metaphors the Bible uses. Dead 
and slave. Those are the two. We're born into this world biologically alive, but spiritually dead. In other words, we have no inclination whatsoever towards the things of God. We saw that in the early chapters of Romans. It's not just that there's filth and sin and rebellion and condemnation. It's that people don't want anything to do with God. It's not just that they can't free themselves from their condition. They don't want free from their condition. We're dead to God, hating him. Loving our sin. So since we're spiritually dead, we're slaves to the sinful desires and lusts that drive our behavior and rule over us. The biblical picture of humanity apart from Christ is animalistic, driven by its lusts and its passions and its desires, powerless to do anything else. We're, we're not just participants in sin, we're slaves to sin. Sin is not just what, what's in our nature. It's our master. It rules over us. It commands us and we obey. Augustine, the great church father, used this metaphor. He said, if you're a horse, before your conversion, you had one rider and that rider was Satan. He, he had the bit in your teeth. He had control of the reins. If he said go, you went. If he said stop, you stopped. If he said go right or go left, you did what you were told because he was your master and you were his Slave, but believer, something incredible has happened to you. Something astounding has happened. You've gone through a spiritual resurrection. When we look at the horrors that Paul describes in Romans, in the early chapters of Romans, it should make us weep with joy and gratitude. How could God set me free from that? So Paul says this, verse five, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This teaching is all throughout the New Testament. It's so essential for us to understand Ephesians chapter 2, one of the great sections in all of Scripture, starting in verse 1, says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. What's he talking about there? It's that same pit that Paul describes in the early chapters of Romans. It's that same condition, spiritual death, spiritual slavery. And then verse four, the most beautiful words, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You have been, Paul says, made alive. You were dead, but you have been made alive. That's regeneration, Paul's talking about. This doctrine of regeneration lies at the heart of all of Paul's teaching here in Romans 6. Luther called regeneration the greatest. Miracle of all, to make a dead person live. 
It's not something you can do for yourself, by the way. How much influence did you have over your physical birth? Now, you might be thinking, I had a little bit. I was a kicker. And I, I, maybe I was born a little sooner because of that. All right, how much influence did you have over your conception? And the answer is none, absolutely none. Most of us don't want to hear anything about our conception, in fact. We don't want anywhere near it. So it is with your spiritual rebirth. You have no influence over that. You don't get to help with that. You're powerless to do anything about that. Only God has the power to raise a person from spiritual death to eternal life. Regeneration is a work of the Holy Spirit, and it happens in the life of the believer supernaturally and immediately. It happens in in the soul of the human when he imparts life to us. So the Spirit's work of regeneration is is direct. It's it's God dealing with each person individually. He he had to to make you live individually. And it's to use a theological term, monergistic. In other words, it's not a joint venture. It's not that you played some role in, in your regeneration and God played some role No, God and God alone is the only one who can raise a person from the dead. God is the only one who possesses eternal life, and so he's the only one that can give eternal life to anyone. The flesh, which is all you were prior to your conversion, can do nothing. We see this exchange in John chapter 3 between Jesus and Nicodemus the Pharisee. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus in John chapter 3 verse 2 and says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher that comes from God. For no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus says that in verse 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 5, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Later in the same conversation, he says in verse 63, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Some translations say the flesh profits nothing. The flesh doesn't assist We didn't assist in this. The Spirit gives life. Martin Luther says, when Jesus says the Spirit gives life, the flesh profits nothing, Martin Luther in a debate with Erasmus says, that nothing is not a little something. (laughs) In other words, nothing means nothing. The flesh profits nothing. There's no help coming on our end whatsoever. So when you're physically born, you're 100% flesh. That flesh, as we have seen repeatedly in the book of Romans, is totally hostile towards God. And unless God, the Holy Spirit, changes you, you will stay flesh forever and die in your sins. Your corruption is so radical, you couldn't possibly help yourself. You can't possibly cause yourself to be born again. There's nothing you can do. God does it all. 
Only God can raise someone from the dead. Only God can rescue someone out of that pit. Only God can break someone free from that concrete slab of humanity under the reign of sin and death in Adam. Only God can do these things and we can't do anything. We have seen it over and over and over in the book of Romans. It is a completely helpless and hopeless situation. But Christian, Paul says here, you have been raised from the dead. Think about the glory of that for a minute. I I wish we would think about this more. I wish I would think about it more. I wouldn't be so prone to discouragement if I thought about this more, if I meditated on this truth more. Think, Think about all the blessings you've received in your lifetime. Does any one of them hold a candle to this? Think about the times you've grumbled when you didn't get what you wanted. Think about the times you've been discontented, disillusioned, dissatisfied with the hand that God had given you. Christian, no matter what you're facing in your life, no matter what you are going through, no matter what you will go through, if you have received the supernatural work of regeneration You've got no reason to do anything but praise God. You've received the greatest gift. You've received from God a treasure that is beyond comprehension. You've been raised from the dead already. That doesn't mean that we don't have pain in this life. It doesn't mean that things don't hurt and we need to put on some fake smile and pretend that we're never sad but brothers and sisters, we need, to, we need to have these lenses on to view our lives through. You've been raised from the dead. Already, you, you're already going to live eternally. That eternal life has already started. And so Paul says, we should walk in newness of life. We have newness of life. We have been changed. So Christian, consider that that has happened to you, that you have died with Christ, that you have raised again in the power of his resurrection and live like it. Think like it. How would it change our our lives if we just started thinking like this was true? If we started applying this truth to, to the things that we think and the way that we feel, risen with Christ, we now live by his resurrection life. I hope you think about that the next time you're tempted to murmur or complain. I hope you think about that the next time you're tempted to hold something against someone over another Christian's head. I hope you think about that. We've been raised to newness of life. The death and resurrection of Christ matters in our everyday lives. This is as practical as it gets. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We are called to live our lives in the light of this knowledge. That Jesus died and rose again, and we too have died with him and now live in the power of his resurrection life.
Paul goes on in verse six, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. Paul says our our old self was crucified, literally our old man. Our old man was crucified. It's, It's that flesh that was dead in sin, enslaved to sin, hostile towards God. That old self was crucified with Christ. That is no longer our condition. When we read these early chapters of Roman and, and, and what, what is theologically called the total depravity of man, that's not true of you anymore, Christian. You're not depraved. You've been made alive with Christ. Jesus didn't just die, though. We see in this statement, our old self was crucified with him. He didn't just die for your sins. He died for your sinfulness. Not not just your sin legally, bearing the guilt for your actions, the things you did that you shouldn't have done, and the things that you didn't do that you should have done. He died to kill your old man. He died to break your solidarity in Adam. to redeem you from original sin, to redeem you from your total depravity, from your moral inability to do anything pleasing to him. Christ died to free you from that. Our old self was crucified with him so that, Paul says, the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Now, when he says might be, he doesn't mean it's a possibility. He crucified the old man, so hopefully... No, it's an idiomatic way of saying it's a sure thing. The body of sin has been brought to nothing. In other words, our sinful condition, our depravity under the reign of sin has been completely overwhelmed, completely overpowered and overtaken by our union with Christ and it is now powerless over us. It is powerless to control us. It is powerless to dominate us. We have been set Free. That's why Paul says in the second half of verse six, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Again, the language here carries the force that believers can no longer be slaves to sin. The reign of sin has been brought to nothing in the life of a Christian. It's impossible for the true Christian to be enslaved to sin. Now, it's one thing to be a sinner but it's another thing to be a slave of sin. And Christians cannot be slaves of sin. So Christians continue to sin, will continue to sin until we die. We are not teaching some sort of sinless perfectionism where we finally arrive and we never sin again. No, we'll continue to sin in this life, but we are no longer slaves to that sin. Here's what that means for you. We can no longer say of our sin, I can't help it. We all know this person. It's none of us. We all know this person. Maybe it was one of your kids that you raised, right? And you speak a word of correction to them. They go, I can't help it. Adults generally say, this is just who I am. If you can't take me at my worst, you don't deserve me at my best. What a godless notion. 
No, we don't have the privilege anymore of saying, I can't help it. Because if that were true, it means you're not regenerate. It means you've not been made alive. It means you've not been broken free. You've not been born again. You've not been set free from the reign of sin. You're still a slave to sin. Again, it doesn't mean that we don't have besetting sins. It doesn't mean that we have, we've all got those particular sins that we tend to fall to over and over again. What it means though, is that we are called to resist those sins, to fight against those sins, to war against them. We are called to put them to death. As John Owen said, be killing sin or it would be killing you. The Christian is called to live their life at war with sin. Even the greatest Christians have to fight against sin every day for all of their lives. We could all come up with stories of Christians we have known and loved and respected who quit fighting against sin and had disastrous results. Even the best Christians. This is what the life is in this world, is that we must war against sin at all times. But... And, and this is essential that we understand this, we have been set free. We still struggle with sin. We still must fight against sin. We have these besetting sins and we even fall in sin. But friends, we have been set free from the reign of sin. We have the power of God now at our disposal. It's not that he just broke us free and set us down over here and said, now behave. We've got the power of God at our disposal to have victory over any given sin in any given moment because he has broken sin's power over us and the third person of the triune Godhead dwells within us. The Holy Spirit of God. What a gift. Who could imagine a God like this, a God who would do this, a salvation this thorough, this powerful. But friend, if you are not in Christ, you don't have any of this. You don't have any of these things that Paul has just been talking to us about. You're still under sin's domination. You're still under sin's reign. You are still a slave to sin, and more than that, a willing slave. You're spiritually dead. You're unable to cause yourself to live. Yours is a desperate, desperate condition, and your only hope is not going to be found within yourself. You cannot cause yourself to live. You cannot break yourself free from sin's domination. Your only hope is to find life outside of yourself. It's found in only one place. It comes from being united to the Lord Jesus Christ. In him, in Christ alone, we have not only forgiveness, but freedom, transformation, and life eternal. All of these things will be ours forever if we are in Christ. And brothers and sisters, friends, God invites us to that today. God, God invites us today to turn from sin, to renounce sin, 
to flee from sin, to bow our knee to Christ, to submit to him, to trust in him. It's an all or nothing proposition from him. You're turning away from yourself and your sin and your rebellion and you're turning to Jesus in saving faith. It's all of one piece. You don't do some of it and not the other part. There's no hope. There's no hope for saving ourselves within ourselves. Only God can save. There's nothing we can offer to him. There's nothing we can do by way of living well that would put God in our debt somehow. There's but one option. You have only to hold out the empty hand of faith and beg for mercy. Cry out for grace. Call on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. And Christians, this is what we must do daily. Turning from sin. Running to Christ. Perhaps even this morning you have thought of sin that you need to turn from. We're all so skilled at this. That's why Calvin called the human heart a factory of idols. We are constantly coming up with new and creative ways to rebel against God and sin. And maybe this morning, some of those things, God has shined a light on them this morning. You must turn from that sin. Run to Jesus with it. Seek to put that sin to death. You come to God too with the empty hand of faith. Here's the glorious news, though, for all of us. The glorious news for Christians. The glorious news for, for the one who is now being convicted of their rebellion against God. And has come to realize that they don't possess salvation, that they're dead in their sin. Here's the good news for all of us. The Father always responds to that cry for mercy, that humble and repentant cry for grace and salvation, God always responds to that cry with mercy. Always. He will never turn away the one who comes to him in humble, repentant faith. So come. Come to him. Come to Jesus. He will have you. Believer, come to him. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this gospel. Lord, the hope that is in this gospel is so astounding. Lord, may we live our lives in light of these truths. And I do pray particularly for any in this room who don't know you, Lord, who, who, who are still in that pit, who are still in their solidarity with Adam, who are still dead in their sins, that you would, by your spirit, Grant to them saving faith. Cause them to call on your name for salvation, to trust in you, to renounce their sin. I pray that you would save them. Lord, again, this is only your work. They can't save themselves, and I can't say magic words to save them. This is your work, the work of your spirit. The flesh contributes nothing. We pray, Lord, that you would save them. Give to them faith. 
Pray, Lord, for my brothers and sisters, those whom you have saved by your grace, those whom you have caused to die and resurrect with Christ, that you would cause us to live our lives in light of this truth. Lord, that we would be a joyful people, that we would be a hopeful people, that we would be, Lord, a people who, who are bursting at the seams with, with the knowledge of your grace and mercy and power to save, and that we would proclaim it boldly, clearly, constantly. Lord, that it would affect the way we live our lives when we're tempted to despair, when we're tempted to grumble. Lord, in every aspect of our lives, Lord, let us live our lives in the light of this knowledge that we are in Christ. We rejoice in you, in your great salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.